Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, it's been quite a while since I've given any sort of a preamble to the uh, podcast that I've been putting out. I've been pretty busy, and I thought I'd just bring you up to date a little bit about what's been going on. When, when I got back this this winter from my sail across the Atlantic, of course, we started in Spain, and we ended up uh, in Trinidad, Spain to Grenada, and then Grenada down to Trinidad. When I got to Grenada, I was in abject pain with sciatica, and a lot of people suffer from sciatica. So I went through the usual process of dealing with sciatica, uh, hoping it would just go away on its own, because quite often it's just an inflammation of the sciatic nerve. But I was in terrible, terrible pain when I was sailing my last month in Grenada. Uh, so much to the point where I asked Neil Fletcher to come down and sail with me, and he, he did. He came down and helped me and helped me put up the boat. And that was a godsend to me because the pain just was not going away. So I went through the usual process of going to physical therapy, and physical therapy didn't work. And then I went to a pain management clinic and got some steroid injections into my spine. And then after that didn't work, uh, I got two injections and the pain started coming back again. And after that, the the doctor said, listen, we're not going to keep giving you steroid injections. You've got to go see a surgeon. And so I went and saw a surgeon and they did an MRI. And they found that there was basically a cyst uh, between L4 and L5 that was causing the pain, and it's not, it was not going to go away on its own. And so I asked the surgeon, I said, well, when do I need to get surgery? He said, well, whenever you want to. It's up to you. And if you can handle the pain and not get the surgery, then that's fine. But it was debilitating to me. I was walking around hunched over. I couldn't stand up very long. I'm I'm in a lot of pain. Right now I had another cortisone injections uh, and this is October 13th. And anyway, I'm I'm scheduled for a fuse of my disc between L4 and L5. The disc L4, L5, they're, they're scheduling me for a disc fusion on the 30th of October, which means, first of all, I'm not going to be skiing at all this year. And secondly, I had planned on going back to the boat on January I think I'd already made my scheduled flight for January 29th, and I had to cancel that. I'm not going to be able to get back to the boat until at the earliest May, because it's going to. They basically said it's going to be six months before you can really do anything. Three months before I even start getting physical therapy, and then another three months where I can't really do a whole heck of a lot. And then really it takes a full year for the recovery. So it's really messed with my life and my lifestyle. I don't like it at all. When I got back from the boat, I went up to the ranch. My wife had not been able to keep the snow removed. We hired a local neighbor up there to plow the road from the main road up the valley down to our cabin, down to our house, I should say which is about a quarter mile, and he could not keep up with it. We had the most amazing year of snow in Utah that we've had in many, many years. And that's great if you're skiing, but it's terrible if you're trying to keep a road open. And my wife just basically gave up and went down to our house in Salt Lake City and stayed there till I got back. So I went back up to the ranch around the 1st of April when I got back from the Caribbean, and I spent five hours with my Kubota snowblower clearing out the snow from our house out to the main road. They, they kept the main road open, but it was like driving in a tunnel. They couldn't push the snow any farther, and it was way over the top of the car as you drove up the valley. It was a, an amazing year for snow. So the main road was kept open, but I still had to plow out to the main road. And it took me about, like I say, about five hours to do that. And I would have to go forward uh, foot uh, with the snowblower, then raise the snowblower up, and then go forward a foot, and then come back down, go forward a foot, move over, go up, 
go down. It was just, it was so deep that I couldn't do it in one pass because it was over four feet deep. Well, was it four feet? Well, probably about three and a half feet deep that I was blowing. It was compressed down because it had been snowing pretty much from the time I left in December until April. And there was snow on top of my garage. It had just piled up and piled up and piled up and never slid off and never really had a chance to slide off. It never really warmed up enough during the winter for it to melt enough to slide off the roof. When I went back up there a week later, we had had a warming spell for the first time, first week in April. And all the snow that had been on top of the main roof slid onto the and this is a barn like structure where you got two lean twos and then a big op- a taller area that has another roof up above it so it's got two levels to the roof an upper level and a lower level the lower levels are on both sides well all the snow from the upper level had suddenly released in one big slab and came crashing down on the lower level on both sides and then of course that caused all the snow on the lower level to slide on down to the to the ground and it had actually piled up higher than the actual roof when it all came down but what happened is it left two big full-length dents on the lower levels and i got the insurance company up there and they said sure enough and thank goodness i had insurance that covered it and it was basically policy limits to get it fixed so the company, the insurance company, wrote me a check out for policy limits and said, you're on your own. Fortunately, that was almost enough to cover the damage. And uh, just last week, my contractor went up there and finished fixing the outside. We still have a lot to do on the inside, but the roof has been replaced, which was lucky because it was really wet this summer. A lot of rain up in the mountains this summer. And we were worried because when I took off the roof, we have the insulation underneath the roof, and underneath the insulation we have a big white tarp that covers up the insulation. And my big fear was were we going to get the roof off, and it was going to rain and soak the insulation. Fortunately, we were able to avoid that. We did have to take off the insulation on one one side of the roof. Well, back, basically, we took it off both sides and then had to put it back. But my big fear was we were going to get that insulation wet and it was going to ruin the insulation in the in the garage. And what, what my wife calls the barn and I call my garage. Anyway, that's about it. That's all I've been working on. I have my surgery to look forward to and I'm not looking forward to that at all. I, I take that back. I am looking forward to, to getting this problem solved. And I hope it will solve the problem. If you have any suggestions on the recovery, if you've had this surgery, drop me a note. Anyway, with that out of the way, I'm going to go into an interview with a woman that reached out to me a while back, Karen Jewell. She's written a book on preparing yourself mentally for sailing. And let's go ahead and get right into that interview. Oh, if you have any suggestions for future podcasts, drop me a note, franz1 at medsailor.com. If you want to support this podcast, I have a Patreon account, patreon.com backslash medsailor. But the best way to support this podcast is to go in and buy some of my audiobooks. I have audiobooks for uh, the ASA 101, the 103, and the 104 exams. I can't teach you how to sail in an audiobook, but I can teach you the fundamentals of what you will need to do to pass the written portion of those exams. That's how I'd like you to support the podcast is getting something of value for it. Anyway, thanks a lot. Let's get on to that interview. Welcome back to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. This week I am on Skype. Actually, I'm on Skype calling a phone of Karen Jewell. Karen reached out to me about a week ago and said, I've written a book that might be of interest to your listeners. Here's a little bit about it. And I think it may be of interest, so let's go ahead and, and talk about it. So, Karen, tell me, we talked a, a, a briefly on our phone call about your sailing experience, but just give our listeners a summation of your history in sailing. Okay. I actually, I've uh, worn quite a few hats in the boating world. 
Um, I was a dock master at three different um, clubs and marinas. So one was the Stanford Yacht Club, which is a very prestigious club um, in Stanford, Connecticut. And I was also a dock master at the former Brewer's Yacht Haven in Stanford. And then thirdly at Norwalk Cove Marina, which is another international uh, large scale marina. I've worked in a sail loft. I have had my own yacht cleaning slash maintenance business. I have been a yacht charter broker and a yacht sales broker. And I think that pretty much covers, I think that's, that's quite a bit. <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. And you've written a book. It's called Inside the Nautical Mind's Eye. Let's go over that and tell us what it's about. I haven't read the book. All I'm doing is looking at an article. Like, Explain to our listeners why you decided to write this book and what it's about. Okay. I actually, I have three other published books, which are all about maritime history um, in our local area here in Connecticut. I also wrote a column for 11 years for the Norwalk Hour newspaper. It's a weekly column called Water Views. So it had everything to do with everything along the waterfront. Um, within that, I also was very passionate about fitness. And I am a certified fitness trainer as well as a certified mental skills coach. Um, so putting my passion for boating, sailing, yachting, as well as my passion for fitness together, I came up with the idea for this book, Inside the Nautical Mind's Eye, which is actually mental skills applications for improved sailing performance. All right. How does it work? It works. Actually, the book is a nice, easy read. I did, I'm not one to do like a heavy textbook style. Um, I do do seminars and clinics that um, uh, expand upon the applications in the book. But the book is one that you can pretty much bring with you everywhere you go and reference easily. So Within the book, there are 34 applications um, with brief explanations and um, practices to implement that you can do on your own. Uh, just to give you an idea of some of the applications, there's finding the zone, positive self-statements, keywords, inspiration and motivation, creating a clean slate, Take up presence, not space. Writing journals. Reflections. The mind's inner ear. Superstitions. How to feed your brain. Knowing when to focus and when to relax. And taking a fresh view. So that's just a sample of the type of applications that are within the book. Okay. So I see this is available at seaworthy.com. It's $25, and it's about 80 pages, and it's an actual mm -hmm. physical book. You can also order an ebook. it looks like. Do you have any, any data that backs up the information in your book? Well, the data does come from my um, certification as a mental skills coach and many years of working with athletes of all types. I actually, for 10 years was training both physically and um, mental with sit-up paddle boarders, um, which was a very, we were actually like two doors down from the rowing club as well. So the rowing club got involved with the training too. So um, that's where my experience comes from and my background. Okay. So do you want to expand on any particular chapter that you think we would be interested in reading? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I could go with all of them. If we, have time <laughs> we, we got time. They, <laughs> all right. I'd be happy to. Okay, and great. also the book, each application has a corresponding um, image photograph that goes with it. So that it also inspires and it also connects to the text on the page. So that kind of adds life to the book as well. So I'll start out with the first chapter, which is actually called Lifelines. All sailors worth their salt know the importance of physical lifelines on board a vessel. For cruising yachts, they are the stanchions with shock cord or netting that run along the rails. For small boat racers, it is the harness or foot strap that keeps them attached to their vessel in all conditions. No captain in their right mind would ever leave shore without the proper safety gear in place. 
When it comes to competitive sailing, there are additional lifelines to consider, and those are the ones inside the sailor's mind. How strong is your safety net when it comes to the psychology of sailing? Is your foundation and resilience powerful enough to weather any storm? As you gear up for your next training session or competition, be sure that your mental lifelines are prepared for whatever may come your way while on the water. Lifelines, harnesses, and safety nets, both physical and mental, are essential sailing gear for a successful sailing career. And then the next is finding the zone. The zone, you know without doubt when you have achieved it. Everything feels easy, smooth, natural, and empowering. You feel like you're floating on a cloud and nothing can go wrong. In sports, it is referred to as being in the zone or flow. It is a state of mind that innately becomes a state of being where you perform at your absolute best and beyond. Learning how to replicate that feeling at any given moment is a mental skill that takes time to acquire. When you find yourself in that rare flow state, commit it to memory. Remember it in your head, heart, and soul. What were your circumstances of your surroundings? What was your mood? How did you feel physically? Completely immerse yourself in the moment and nurture it even after it has passed. Recall it every chance you can. The more you practice this, the more easily you will be able to recreate the zone when training or competing. Become one with nature, allow a flow state to happen, and watch as your performance excels to even higher levels. Next application is visualization and imagery. What do you see in your mind's eye? That's the view that the brain creates after the physical eye has received an image. Do you see perfection? A mediocre sailing outing? Perhaps a far less than ideal training session? If you want to succeed, you will need to give less attention to what you physically see and focus more on how your mind interprets that vision. In other words, see what you want to see happen. Visualization and imagery are extremely powerful training tools to help you achieve your sailing goals. When it comes to applying techniques to these mental skills, what you see is literally what you get. For instance, instead of simply accepting your skill level as it is, picture yourself performing beyond your optimal level and do it every moment you can. Let it be the first thing you do when you wake in the morning and the last thing you do before you go to sleep at night and watch how your body responds at your next training session or competition. Since your body innately reacts directly from what your mind tells it to do, the results will amaze you. Visualization and imagery. Remember, if you see great, you will be great. Next application is goal setting, the five golden rules for sailing success. When setting your sailing goals for both training and competition, remember to follow the five golden rules. One is to choose realistic goals, ones that are within your reach and within your personality and physical abilities. Number two is to create a plan to achieve those goals. Put together a smart plan that again will work with your personal situation as far as time, energy, and abilities. Number three is to commit to and practice the plan consistently. Number four, periodically evaluate how the plan is working. Every few weeks, check to see if you're making progress. And number five is make changes to the plan as needed. So in essence, it's attainable, assemble, apply, assess, and adjust. The five golden rules for sailing success. Next, we have positive self-statements. Never underestimate the power of positive self-statements, reminding yourself that you have exceptional hiking skills an above average understanding of strategy and tactics, great physical endurance, or any number of positive characteristics that you have can go a long way in helping you to achieve success in your sailing career. Start a logbook and write down your achievements, your exceptional skill sets, and your strong points, and refer to it regularly before every race, competition, or training session. Over time, you will begin to notice that you feel more confident and self-assured. You will experience an extra boost in your morale that, in turn, will get your adrenaline pumping 
for greater physical performance. Positive self-statements. Improve your on-water results by focusing on your strong suits and believing in yourself. Okay, Karen, that's that's pretty good. With the, it sounds to me like it's a lot of uh, mental. Well, and that's what you say it is. It's a mind's eye, <laughs> mental preparedness for for what you're doing. I'm just reading your uh, little bio on your book, and it says that you've been a mental skills coach for sports. What sports have you been involved with? I've been involved with, um, as I mentioned, stand-up paddleboarding and rowing, but also softball, basketball, golf, field hockey, tennis, and I'm missing one in there. Oh, and running. And what got you into that? What was your driving force for getting you involved in, in mental skills training? Well, I've been an athlete myself ever since I can remember. So ever since elementary school, I've been playing sports, participating um, in high school, at college, um, and even beyond. So physical training was always a natural part for me. But as I got older, you know, probably like 20 years ago, um, I really started to recognize how vitally important the mental side of sports training and even life in general is. I actually have some of my clients that apply um, these applications to their business and to their personal lives. So it even seems to extend outside of just sports. This sounds like a lot of the books I've read, um, Think and Be Rich uh, and a few others, uh, where you visualize it and you put a, a a board up there and visualize board and that sort of thing. Is this a, a lot what you're thinking about or talking about? It, yeah, it's along the same lines. Absolutely. I mean, I don't personally talk about the vision boards and so forth, but yeah, it's all around that same mentality, um, really mentally seeing success in any endeavor. You've also written a bunch of articles a column yeah. called Water Views for, for 11 years. Now, where was this published? It was published in um, the Norwalk Hour in Norwalk, Connecticut. But it was also they were also affiliated with Stanford. Um, so those, which is, I don't know if you know this area too well, but it's a highly populated area. So just those two towns alone cover a lot of people. Um, so this was a weekly column. Um, that went out. And I actually, I do have a collection. It's going to ultimately be a six volume collection. And there are two volumes that have already, so I've taken, you know, some of the best of the essays um, that I wrote through all the years. Now, what were the essays about? Were they about particular people, characters on the waterfront? What, what did you write about? They, I pretty much wrote about anything and everything. Cause if you can imagine, I, over 11 years, a weekly column. So that's 52 a year times 11. So that's a lot. It's over 500 columns. So um, luckily my editor pretty much, well, definitely gave me free reign um, of what to write because I just kept coming up with good topics and good ideas. So a lot of it had to do with my experiences with all the jobs that I've had uh, in, in boating and I also, I live in Connecticut, but my family also has a home in Maine. So there's a lot of Maine connections. So New, Ke- um, New England in general is pretty much covered. But then there were times that I covered specific people, um, specific businesses, um, juniors, juniors, you know, old people. Um, I think my favorites were when I just called upon my experiences I just grabbed the book. I don't know if you want to hear one of the... Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you, why don't you talk about your most memorable article or one of your most memorable articles that you wrote? Okay, so there's a lot. Let me just cruise. Um, and, and some of them, you know, I always tried to write very lighthearted, so nothing was ever a negative or anything like that. Um, let's just see. All right, I'll try. Okay, let's try this one. It's called One of Those Days. Did you ever have one of those days that starts out looking bad before you even get out of bed? 
And while sometimes you can eventually block out at least a few of those nerve-wracking days, there are others that for some reason just will not let you forget. One of my standout bad days happened years ago, yet I can still remember it as if it were yesterday. It was the middle of the summer and my yacht cleaning business was booming, booming so much that I was certain that I would not be able to complete all of my commitments before the end of the week. Luckily, though, I knew that I could rely on the help of my one employee, Sue, who worked as hard and diligently as a full staff of five. The plan was that if we really buckled down, perhaps we'd be able to at least come close to finishing all of our chores on time. Attempting to get a good night's rest before wrestling the heavy workload, I was in a deep sleep when my much-needed REM was abruptly interrupted by the ring of the phone at 5 a.m. Karen spoke a faint voice on the other end of the line. I'm not going to be able to make it to work. I am so sick. Sue, is that you was my fearful reply? My initial hope was that maybe someone had misdialed. Long story short, yes, it indeed was my number one asset, and no, she most definitely would not be able to work that day. Wide awake at that point, I figured that I had better get a jump on my to-do list. Literally falling out of bed, it dawned on me that I did not feel all that well myself. Great, this is really going to be a long day. Running out the door, I was once again startled by the telephone ringing. Hello, is this Karen? Came the question with an extreme Southern drawl. This is Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, right. Harry Connick Jr. is calling me. My friend Peter was notorious for staging practical jokes that were, for the most part, rather entertaining. However, at that particular moment, I was not in the mood and I had no problem letting it be known. Clearly and frankly, I stated that this was not good timing, and I somewhat rudely suggested that he focus his mischievous energies on some other poor soul and quickly hung up. Two seconds later, the phone rings again, and it is the same man. Once more, I shared my dislike of his intrusion on my time and emphatically reiterated my request for him to leave me alone. After a third attempt by the annoyingly persistent Harry to tell me just why it was that he was calling, I hastily listened. He asked if I would clean his 24-foot Grady White on a weekly basis and could we meet to discuss the details. Seeing that my first job was at the same dock he claimed to be on, I hesitantly agreed on 11 a.m. As 11 a.m. came and went, I felt my blood pressure beginning to rise until I noticed someone walking down the ramp. Although aggravated for the hassle, I was glad that this person did finally show up to apologize for the prank. However, as the figure came closer, I suddenly felt as ill as my coworker had sounded earlier that morning. Harry, I barely squeaked out. Connick Jr., he finished. Let us suffice it to say that there were not enough, I'm so sorry for not believing it was used in the world, to cover my embarrassment. Mr. Connick, in an extremely gracious way, explained that he receives similar reactions when he tries to make dinner reservations. Nobody ever believes me. They think that I would have an assistant do it, he says. Fortunately for me, it turns out that Harry Connick Jr. is one of those genuinely nice guys who also happens to have an amazing level of patience, understanding, and forgiveness. For the record, the 24-foot Grady Way did become a regular account for two years, which just goes to show that on the water, even a bad day is better than a good day anywhere else. <laughs> so so that's an example. Yeah, that's a nice story. A 24-foot Grady White. What kind of boat is that? Is that a sailboat? Is that a runabout, power runabout? What kind of boat is that? That's a runabout. So he, he liked to fish. Uh-huh. Um, so you just had a small 24-foot um, center console. Okay, okay. So you cleaned boats for a living for quite a while then. I did in my early 20s, and I did quite well. Because, uh, as you can imagine, here in Connecticut, it's very much seasonal. And I easily made enough money to carry me through the, our hard winters. So it was quite lucrative. A lot of work. A lot of work. But lucrative, healthy, good for you. What? Give us, uh, you know, I have to clean my boat once in a while. And I every now and then I think about paying somebody to do it. But I'm just too cheap. Give me, a, give me any special tips that you have on cleaning boats. Well, what type of boat do you have? It's a Bristol Channel Cutter. It's Lyle Hess Design Sailboat Bristol Channel Cutter. So Is it's there a, a lot of teak? Or? Uh, there's teak, but I don't worry about the teak. I let that go gray. It's mainly in the interior that I worry about more than anything. What are the keys for getting stains off cockpit cushions? That's a big one. 
You know, it worked so well for me way back when, and to be quite honest, I don't even know if the brand is around anymore, but it was Royale uh, Wax, R-O-Y-A-L-E. It came in a green can and it, um, it cleaned everything from, like you talk about, oh yeah, oh gosh, I would put it. And then that, that I actually learned just by trial and error. Like there would be things I'm like, I'm going to clean this. And I would just take some of the wax and I would put it on and, and cushions too, especially it did really well. The only thing is you do have to realize that once you wax the cushions and that they're shiny and spotless, they are going to be quite slick because it's wax, but it cleans it up like nobody's business. Like that, that to me was the miracle. So the wax actually takes out the dirt in the cushions as well then. Oh yes. Yes. It, it, it was like the miracle uh, go-to for, for us in the cleaning bed. I always smelled of Royale wax all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard yeah. of that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, yeah. So that's basically, and then we, back then we just used boat soap to clean, you know, just do a general wash. And uh, actually one trick I learned from as far as cleaning windows um, not the Windex, but actually vinegar and water. And that I learned from, we had a client that was passing through on their way up to the Martha's Vineyard, but they wound up, they had some um, mechanical work that had to be done and they wound up staying in Stanford for the whole summer. And it was a 80 foot um, powerboat named Ralemar, R-E-L-E-M-A-R. And there was a captain and his wife that ran it um, while the owner would be on and off depending. Um, but they, they turned me on to that water and vinegar was the absolute best way to clean windows. And it was, so that was another tip. It also turned out um, actually just one of my stories on this too. Um, there was one time where they said, well, clean the boat up real good this week because we're going to be gone for a few weeks we're, we are going up to the vineyard, but then we'll be back for more work. I said, okay. So uh, me and Sue cleaned it up real good. And then when um, literally the next week I was at the grocery store and on the cover of People magazine was a picture of Maurice Templesman, uh, Jackie Onassis and John Jr. on the cover. I was like, oh, I loved it, you know, because it was a boating cover. And I'm looking closely and I'm like, wait a minute that's the flybridge that me and Sue just cleaned. So when, when the boat returned, I asked Joe, the the captain, I said, who owns this boat? And he said, Maurice Templesman is Jackie Onassis's, uh, her last partner. And, um, I said, why don't you ever tell me? He goes, you never asked. So that was a fun story <laughs> and a fun account. Yeah. He, uh, he actually, he actually nicknamed me Bubba. So since he and his wife, Virginia, traveled a lot, obviously, on the water, and they stopped at a lot of ports of call. And so they would, along the way, they would wind up having, like, favorite um, dock staff or whatever. So they would have, like, this list, you know, who they would uh, pick as a steward, who would they pick as a assistant captain, you know, if they needed, who would they pick as an assistant chef. So they had this list, and he had one time – I don't really remember why, but he nicknamed me Bubbles. Um, so they're going down the list or telling me who they would pick. And then they said, and then we have Bubbles. We don't really know why. We just want to have Bubbles with us. So <laughs> I, I got on the list, but I didn't have to necessarily do anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting world back there. I've never sailed on the East Coast, but I have had crew members join me that actually are from Stanford area. When I sailed across the Atlantic last year, one of my crew members was, I think, from Stamford. But it's quite a quite a yachting tradition back there. I'm more of a West Coast person or a cruising person in the Mediterranean, but never really sailed on the East Coast at all. Oh, yachting is huge here. And especially, I mentioned the Stamford Yacht Club. There were, I was a um, stockmaster for a few years. That was probably one of the most prestigious clubs on Long Island Sound. And um, they actually, they hosted the Stanford Denmark race once a year. Um, so the, it was the king of Denmark was there and he, he participated. And it, it, that was a very formal club. So um, me as a dock master, I actually had, I wore epaulets, you know, on the shoulders um, and my staff as well. But, the, you know, with the right amount of bars, like me being the top level had three or four bars. And then, so 
it was a very precision and um, shooting off the cannon in the morning as you raise the flag. And it, it was a club that had, it was a mooring field. So they didn't, they only had a dock for if you're coming to pick up supplies or drop somebody off or whatever. But other than that, we ran, we had four or five launches that ran continually. I think there were 300 moorings. Um, so it was quite a large club with a lot, a lot of history. Actually, when I was there, they had celebrated their centennial. Um, so a lot of history there. Um, but yeah, this area is huge, huge for boating and yachting and sailing. And is this where you're from originally? I was actually born in California, uh, in the San Francisco area. I was in San Mateo, but my family moved back. I was the only one born out West. My dad had happened to been transferred out there for a few years. And that's when I came along. And then, um, we moved back to the East coast when I was about three or four. So I was, you know, raised. Raised on the East Coast, but born in California. Okay, so basically you're from the East Coast. What part of the East Coast were you raised then? Stanford, Connecticut. And then, like I said, we have family in Maine, so we every summer we spent up in Maine. Okay, so that's your hometown then? Yes. All right. What part of Maine? Um, we have, my parents' home was in Tennis Harbor. Their cabin it was right on the St. George's River which enters, um, empties out into the Atlantic. Uh, so that's near Port Clyde, um, Thames Harbor. It's about 30 minutes south of Camden, uh, just to give you like a layout of the of it. But then my aunt and uncle live in Cape Elizabeth, which is right outside of Portland. I have a sister that lives in Naples, Maine, which is on the Great Lakes region of Maine. Uh, and before, when I was really young, we used to go camping up there. So we would camp in Lake Pemaquid, uh, in a, you know, Gunkwit. Um, so, you know, all coastal. I've been to Newport on a friend's boat and taken his power boat down through the, uh, through the narrows into Manhattan. That's about the only sailing on, I've done on the East coast, except a little bit down South. So I don't really know that area very well. Well, if you ever do get the chance, you know, come back and try it again. I mean, you can't <laughs> go wrong on the East Coast, no matter any way you're from Florida up to Maine. Well, Karen, I've enjoyed our conversation. Is there anything else we need to add before we call it an interview? No, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I've enjoyed fun. it. Thanks a lot, Karen. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. This week I am on Skype. Actually, I'm on Skype calling a phone of Karen Jewell. Karen reached out to me about a week ago and said, I've written a book that might be of interest to your listeners. Here's a little bit about it. And I think it may be of interest. So let's go ahead and, and talk about it. So Karen, tell me, we talked a, a, a briefly on our phone call about your sailing experience, but just give our listeners a summation of your history in sailing. Okay. I actually, I've uh, worn quite a few hats in the boating world. Um, I was a dock master at three different um, clubs and marinas. So one was the Stanford Yacht Club, which is a very prestigious club um, in Stanford, Connecticut. And I was also a dock master at the former Brewer's Yacht Haven in Stanford. And then thirdly at Norwalk Cove Marina, which is another international uh, large-scale marina. I've worked in a sail loft. I have had my own yacht cleaning slash maintenance business. I have been a yacht charter broker and a yacht sales broker. And I think that pretty much covers, I think that's, that's quite a bit. <laughs> it's pretty good, yeah. And you've written a book. It's called Inside the Nautical Mind's Eye. Let's go over that and tell us what it's about. I haven't read the book. All I'm doing is looking at an article. Like, Explain to our listeners why you decided to write this book and what it's about. Okay. I actually I have three other published books, which are all about maritime history um, in our local area here in Connecticut. I also wrote a column for 11 years for the Norwalk Hour newspaper. It was a weekly column called Waterviews, so it had everything to do with everything along the waterfront. Um, within that, I also was very passionate about fitness, and I am a certified fitness trainer as well as a certified mental skills coach. 
Um, so putting my passion for boating, sailing, yachting, as well as my passion for fitness together, I came up with the idea for this book, Inside the Nautical Mind's Eye, which is actually mental skills applications for improved sailing performance. All right. How does it work? It works. Actually, the book is a nice, easy read. I did, I'm not one to do like a heavy textbook style. Um, I do do seminars and clinics that um, uh, expand upon the applications in the book. But the book is one that you can pretty much bring with you everywhere you go and reference easily. So within the book, there are 34 applications um, with brief explanations and um, practices to implement that you can do on your own. Uh, just to give you an idea of some of the applications, there's finding the zone, positive self-statements, keywords, inspiration and motivation, creating a clean slate, take up presence, not space, writing journals, reflections, the mind's inner ear, superstitions, how to feed your brain, knowing when to focus and when to relax, and taking a fresh view. So that's just a sample of the type of applications that are within the book. Okay. So I see this is available at seaworthy.com. It's $25, and it's about 80 pages, and it's an actual mm-hmm. physical book. You can also order an ebook. it looks like. Do you have any any data that backs up the information in your book? Well, the data does come from my um, certification as a mental skills coach and many years of working with athletes of all types. I actually, for 10 years, was training both physically and um, mental with sit-up paddle boarders, um, which was a very, we were actually like two doors down from the rowing club as well. So the rowing club got involved with the training too. So um, that's where my experience comes from and my background. Okay. So do you want to expand on any particular chapter that you think we would be interested in reading? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I could go with all of them. If we, have time <laughs> we, we got time. They, <laughs> all right. I'd be happy to. Okay, and great. also the book, each application has a corresponding um, image photograph that goes with it. So that it also inspires and it also connects to the text on the page. So that kind of adds life to the book as well. So I'll start out with the first chapter, which is actually called Lifelines. All sailors worth their salt know the importance of physical lifelines on board a vessel. For cruising yachts, they are the stanchions with shock cord or netting that run along the rails. For small boat racers, it is the harness or foot strap that keeps them attached to their vessel in all conditions. No captain in their right mind would ever leave shore without the proper safety gear in place. When it comes to competitive sailing, there are additional lifelines to consider, and those are the ones inside the sailor's mind. How strong is your safety net when it comes to the psychology of sailing? Is your foundation and resilience powerful enough to weather any storm? As you gear up for your next training session or competition, be sure that your mental lifelines are prepared for whatever may come your way while on the water. Lifelines, harnesses, and safety nets, both physical and mental, are essential sailing gear for a successful sailing career. And then the next is finding the zone. The zone, you know without doubt when you have achieved it. Everything feels easy, smooth, natural, and empowering. You feel like you're floating on a cloud and nothing can go wrong. In sports, it is referred to as being in the zone or flow. It is a state of mind that innately becomes a state of being where you perform at your absolute best and beyond. Learning how to replicate that feeling at any given moment is a mental skill that takes time to acquire. When you find yourself in that rare flow state, commit it to memory. Remember it in your head, heart, and soul. What were your circumstances of your surroundings? What was your mood? How did you feel physically? Completely immerse yourself in the moment and nurture it even after it has passed. Recall it every chance you can. 
The more you practice this, the more easily you will be able to recreate the zone when training or competing. Become one with nature, allow a flow state to happen, and watch as your performance excels to even higher levels. Next application is visualization and imagery. What do you see in your mind's eye? That's the view that the brain creates after the physical eye has received an image. Do you see perfection? A mediocre sailing outing? Perhaps a far less than ideal training session? If you want to succeed, you will need to give less attention to what you physically see and focus more on how your mind interprets that vision. In other words, see what you want to see happen. Visualization and imagery are extremely powerful training tools to help you achieve your sailing goals. When it comes to applying techniques to these mental skills, what you see is literally what you get. For instance, instead of simply accepting your skill level as it is, picture yourself performing beyond your optimal level and do it every moment you can. Let it be the first thing you do when you wake in the morning and the last thing you do before you go to sleep at night and watch how your body responds at your next training session or competition. Since your body innately reacts directly from what your mind tells it to do, the results will amaze you. Visualization and imagery. Remember, if you see great, you will be great. Next application is goal setting, the five golden rules for sailing success. When setting your sailing goals for both training and competition, Remember to follow the five golden rules. One is to choose realistic goals, ones that are within your reach and within your personality and physical abilities. Number two is to create a plan to achieve those goals. Put together a smart plan that, again, will work with your personal situation as far as time, energy, and abilities. Number three is to commit to and practice the plan consistently. Number four, Periodically evaluate how the plan is working. Every few weeks, check to see if you're making progress. And number five is make changes to the plan as needed. So in essence, it's attainable, assemble, apply, assess, and adjust. The five golden rules for sailing success. Next, we have positive self-statements. Never underestimate the power of positive self-statements, reminding yourself that you have exceptional hiking skills and above average understanding of strategy and tactics, great physical endurance, or any number of positive characteristics that you have can go a long way in helping you to achieve success in your sailing career. Start a logbook and write down your achievements, your exceptional skill sets, and your strong points and refer to it regularly before every race, competition, or training session. Over time, you will begin to notice that you feel more confident and self-assured. You will experience an extra boost in your morale that, in turn, will get your adrenaline pumping for a greater physical performance. Positive self-statements. Improve your on-water results by focusing on your strong suits and believing in yourself. Okay, Karen, that's that's pretty good with the... It sounds to me like it's a lot of uh, mental... Well, and that's what you say it is. It's a mind's eye. <laughs> mental preparedness for, for what you're doing. I'm just reading your uh, little bio on your book, and it says that you've been a mental skills coach for sports. What sports have you been involved with? I've been involved with, um, as I mentioned, stand-up paddleboarding and rowing, but also softball, basketball, golf, field hockey, tennis, and I'm missing one in there. Oh, and running. And what got you into that? What was your driving force for getting you involved in in mental skills training? Well, I've been an athlete myself ever since I can remember. So ever since elementary school, I've been playing sports, participating um, in high school, at college, um, and even beyond. So Physical training was always a natural part for me. But as I got older, you know, probably like 20 years ago, um, I really started to recognize how vitally important the mental side of sports training and even life in general is. 
I actually have some of my clients that apply um, these applications to their business and to their personal lives. So it even seems to extend outside of just sports. This sounds like a lot of the books I've read, um, Think and Be Rich uh, and a few others, uh, where you visualize it and you put a, a a board up there and visualize board and that sort of thing. Is this a, a lot what you're thinking about or talking about? Yeah, it's along the same lines. Absolutely. I mean, I don't personally talk about the vision boards and so forth, but yeah, it's all around that same mentality, um, really mentally seeing success in any endeavor. You've also written a bunch of articles a column yeah. called Water Views for, for 11 years. Now, where was this published? It was published in um, the Norwalk Hour in Norwalk, Connecticut. But it was also they were also affiliated with Stanford. Um, so those, which is, I don't know if you know this area too well, but it's a highly populated area. So just those two towns alone cover a lot of people. Um, so this was a weekly column. Um, that went out and I actually I do have a collection it's going to ultimately be a six volume collection and there are two volumes that have already so I've taken you know some of the best of the essays um, that I wrote through all the years now what were the essays about were they about particular people characters on the waterfront what what did you write about they I pretty much wrote about anything and everything because if you can imagine I, over 11 years, a weekly column. So that's 52 a year times 11. So that's a lot. It's over 500 columns. So um, luckily my editor pretty much, well, definitely gave me free reign um, of what to write because I just kept coming up with good topics and good ideas. So a lot of it had to do with my experiences with all the jobs that I've had uh, in, in boating and I also, I live in Connecticut, but my family also has a home in Maine. So there's a lot of Maine connections. So New, um, New England in general is pretty much covered, but then there were times that I covered specific people, um, specific businesses, um, juniors, juniors, you know, old people. Um, I think my favorites were when I just called upon my experiences I just grabbed the book. I don't know if you want to hear one of the... Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you, why don't you talk about your most memorable article or one of your most memorable articles that you wrote? Okay, so there's a lot. Let me just cruise. Um, and, and some of them, you know, I always tried to write very lighthearted, so nothing was ever a negative or anything like that. Um, let's just see. All right, I'll try. Okay, let's try this one. It's called One of Those Days. Did you ever have one of those days that starts out looking bad before you even get out of bed? And while sometimes you can eventually block out at least a few of those nerve-wracking days, there are others that for some reason just will not let you forget. One of my standout bad days happened years ago, yet I can still remember it as if it were yesterday. It was the middle of the summer and my yacht cleaning business was booming, booming so much that I was certain that I would not be able to complete all of my commitments before the end of the week. Luckily, though, I knew that I could rely on the help of my one employee, Sue, who worked as hard and diligently as a full staff of five. The plan was that if we really buckled down, perhaps we'd be able to at least come close to finishing all of our chores on time. Attempting to get a good night's rest before wrestling the heavy workload, I was in a deep sleep when my much-needed REM was abruptly interrupted by the ring of the phone at 5 a.m. Karen spoke a faint voice on the other end of the line. I'm not going to be able to make it to work. I am so sick. Sue, is that you was my fearful reply? My initial hope was that maybe someone had misdialed. Long story short, yes, it indeed was my number one asset, and no, she most definitely would not be able to work that day. Wide awake at that point, I figured that I had better get a jump on my to-do list. Literally falling out of bed, it dawned on me that I did not feel all that well myself. Great, this is really going to be a long day. Running out the door, I was once again startled by the telephone ringing. Hello, is this Karen? 
came the question with an extreme Southern drawl. This is Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, right, Harry Connick Jr. is calling me. My friend Peter was notorious for staging practical jokes that were, for the most part, rather entertaining. However, at that particular moment, I was not in the mood and I had no problem letting it be known. Clearly and frankly, I stated that this was not good timing and I somewhat rudely suggested that he focus his mischievous energies on some other poor soul and quickly hung up. Two seconds later, the phone rings again and it is the same man. Once more, I shared my dislike of his intrusion on my time and emphatically reiterated my request for him to leave me alone. After a third attempt by the annoyingly persistent Harry to tell me just why it was that he was calling, I hastily listened. He asked if I would clean his 24-foot Grady White on a weekly basis and could we meet to discuss the details. Seeing that my first job was at the same dock he claimed to be on, I hesitantly agreed on 11 a.m. As 11 a.m. came and went, I felt my blood pressure beginning to rise until I noticed someone walking down the ramp. Although aggravated for the hassle, I was glad that this person did finally show up to apologize for the prank. However, as the figure came closer, I suddenly felt as ill as my coworker had sounded earlier that morning. Harry, I barely squeaked out. Connick Jr., he finished. Let us suffice it to say that there were not enough, I'm so sorry for not believing it was used in the world, to cover my embarrassment. Mr. Connick, in an extremely gracious way, explained that he receives similar reactions when he tries to make dinner reservations. Nobody ever believes me. They think that I would have an assistant do it, he says. Fortunately for me, it turns out that Harry Connick Jr. is one of those genuinely nice guys who also happens to have an amazing level of patience, understanding, and forgiveness. For the record, the 24-foot Grady White did become a regular account for two years, which just goes to show that on the water, even a bad day is better than a good day anywhere else. <laughs> so so that's an example. Yeah, that's a nice story. A 24-foot Grady White. What kind of boat is that? Is that a sailboat? Is that a runabout, power runabout? What kind of boat is that? That's a runabout. So he, he liked to fish. Uh-huh. Um, so you just had a small 24 foot, um, center console. Okay. Okay. So you cleaned boats for a living for quite a while then. I did in my early twenties and I did quite well because, uh, as you can imagine here in Connecticut, it's very much seasonal and I easily made enough money to carry me through our hard winters. So it was quite lucrative, a lot of work, a lot of work, but lucrative, healthy, good for you what give us uh, you know i have to clean my boat once in a while and i every now and then i think about paying somebody to do it but i'm just too cheap give me a give me any special tips that you have on cleaning boats well what type of boat do you have it's a bristol channel cutter it's lyle has designed sailboat bristol channel cutter so Is it's a lot of teak or uh there's teak but i don't worry about the teak i let that go gray it's mainly in the interior that I worry about more than anything. What are the keys for getting stains off cockpit cushions? That's a big one. You know, it worked so well for me way back when. And to be quite honest, I don't even know if the brand is around anymore, but it was Royale uh, Wax, R-O-Y-A-L-E. It came in a green can, and it um, it cleaned everything, Franz. Like, you talk about, oh, yeah, oh, gosh, I would put it. And then at that, I actually learned just, by trial and error. Like there would be things I'm like, how am I going to clean this? And I would just take some of the wax and I would put it on and, and cushions too, especially it did really well. The only thing is you do have to realize that once you wax the cushions and that they're shiny and spotless, they are going to be quite slick because it's wax, but it cleans it up like nobody's business. Like that, that to me was the miracle. So the wax actually takes out the dirt in the cushions as well then. Oh yes. Yes. It, it was like the miracle uh, go-to for, for us in the cleaning bit. I always smell the Royale wax all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard yeah. of that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, yeah. So that's basically, and then we, back then we just used boat soap to clean, you know, just do a general wash. And uh, actually one trick I learned from as far as cleaning windows um, not the Windex, but actually vinegar and water. And that I learned from, we had a client that was passing through on their way up to the Martha's Vineyard, but they wound up, they had some um, 
mechanical work that had to be done and they wound up staying in Stanford for the whole summer. And it was a 80 foot um, powerboat named Rallemar, R-E-L-E-M-A-R. And there was a captain and his wife that ran it um, while the owner would be on and off depending. Um, but they, they turned me on to that water and vinegar was the absolute best way to clean windows. And it was. So that was another tip. It also turned out, um, actually, just one of my stories on this too. Um, there was one time where they said, well, clean the boat up real good this week because we're going to be gone for a few weeks. We're, we are going up to the vineyard, but then we'll be back for more work. I said, okay. So uh, me and Sue cleaned it up real good. And then when um, literally the next week I was at the grocery store and on the cover of People magazine was a picture of Maurice Templesman, uh, Jackie Onassis and John Jr. on the cover. I was like, oh, I loved it, you know, because it was a boating cover. And I'm looking closely and I'm like, wait a minute, that's the flybridge that me and Sue just cleaned. So when, when the boat returned, I asked Joe, the, the captain, I said, who owns this boat? And he said, Maurice Templesman, it's Jackie Onassis's uh, her last partner. And um, I said, why don't you ever tell me? He goes, you never asked. So that was a fun story <laughs> and a fun account. Yeah, he uh, he actually he actually nicknamed me Bubba. So since he and his wife Virginia traveled a lot, obviously on the water, and they stopped at a lot of ports of call, and so they would along the way they would wind up having like favorite um, dock staff or whatever. So they would have like this list, you know, who they would uh, pick as a steward, who would they pick as a assistant captain, you know, if they needed, who would they pick as an assistant chef. So they had this list. And he had one time, I don't really remember why, but he nicknamed me Bubbles. Um, so they're going down the list or telling me who they would pick. And then they said, and then we have Bubbles. We don't really know why. We just want to have Bubbles with us. So <laughs> I, I got on the list, but I didn't have to necessarily do anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting world back there. I've never sailed on the East Coast, but I have had crew members join me that actually are from Stanford area. When I sailed across the Atlantic last year, one of my crew members was, I think, from Stanford. But it's quite a quite a yachting tradition back there. I'm more of a West Coast person or a cruising person in the Mediterranean, but never really sailed on the East Coast at all. Oh, yachting is huge here. And especially, I mentioned the Stanford Yacht Club. There I was a um, stockmaster for a few years. That was probably one of the most prestigious clubs on Long Island Sound. And um, they actually, they hosted the Stanford-Denmark race once a year. Um, so the, I think it was the king of Denmark was there and he, he participated. And it, that was a very formal club. So um, me as a dock master, I actually had, I wore epaulets, you know, on the shoulders um, and my staff as well. But, the, you know, with the right amount of bars, like me being the top level had three or four bars. And then, so... It was a very prestigious and um, shooting off the cannon in the morning as you raise the flag. And it, it was a club that had, it was a mooring field. So they didn't, they only had a dock for if you're coming to pick up supplies or drop somebody off or whatever. But other than that, we ran, we had four or five launches that ran continually. I think there were 300 moorings. Um, so it was quite a large club with a lot, a lot of history. Actually, when I was there, they had celebrated their centennial. Um, so a lot of history there. Um, but yeah, this area is huge, huge for boating and yachting and sailing. And is this where you're from originally? I was actually born in California, uh, in the San Francisco area. I was in San Mateo, but my family moved back. I was the only one born out West. My dad had happened to been transferred out there for a few years. And that's when I came along. And then, um, we moved back to the East coast when I was about three or four. So I was, you know, raised. Raised on the East Coast, but born in California. Okay, so basically you're from the East Coast. What part of the East Coast were you raised then? Stanford, Connecticut. And then, like I said, we have family in Maine, so we every summer we spent up in Maine. Okay, so that's your hometown then? Yes. All right. What part of Maine? Um, we have, my parents' home was in Tennis Harbor, their cabin. It was right on the St. George's River which enters, um, empties out into the Atlantic. Uh, so that's near Port Clyde. 
um, Thames Harbor. It's about 30 minutes south of Camden, uh, just to give you like a layout of the of it. But then my aunt and uncle live in Cape Elizabeth, which is right outside of Portland. I have a sister that lives in Naples, Maine, which is on the Great Lakes region of Maine. Uh, and before, when I was really young, we used to go camping up there. So we would camp in Lake Pemaquid, uh, in a, you know, Gunkwit. Um, so, you know, all coastal. I've been to Newport on a friend's boat and taken his power boat down through the, uh, through the narrows into Manhattan. That's about the only sailing on, I've done on the East Coast, except a little bit down south. So I don't really know that area very well. Well, if you ever do get the chance, you know, come back and try it again. I mean, you can't <laughs> go wrong on the East Coast, no matter any way you're from Florida up to Maine. Well, Karen, I've enjoyed our conversation. Is there anything else we need to add before we call it an interview? No, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I've enjoyed fun. it. Thanks a lot, Karen. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.